Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, and I'm your host, James Whitmore. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land this show is being broadcast from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and pay my respects to Elders past, present, and emerging. I've got a great show for you today, so stay tuned. But first, here's an announcement. Digichu, people, place, language. Connecting stories, culture and language across Australia. Contribute your content in digitube.com.au. Sign up for a free account and select your options for streaming, download and broadcast promotion. A 3CR supporter. It's been 20 years since Victoria set up its network of marine national parks and sanctuaries. Victoria's marine parks are really special, and not just because they protect some of our amazing marine life. They're special because they were actually designed as a network to protect Victoria's most important marine ecosystems. To find out more and to learn about some of the animals and plants that live in these marine sanctuaries, I spoke to Michael Sams from Parks Victoria. All right, Michael, can you take us back 20 years ago when the Victorian government started creating these um, marine parks? It was actually quite ambitious what Victoria did. Can you tell us about how the creation of these marine parks came about? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it was a long and, and quite involved process, but effectively there was a, a lot of scientific work um, that was done to kind of understand the broad types of habitats that are, are spread across the state. And then I think what's particularly special and unique about our marine reserve is it was designed as a network. So not rather than what you've seen across the world, I guess some reserves have popped up as a bit ad hoc or there's a particular feature in one area that they like, but this was really designed to try and capture all of the representative habitat, which varies across the state from east to west, it was in the in the bays. And so the result of that is we have this network that spans from Cape Howe Marine National Park all the way to Discovery Bay, and it goes into our bays that was underpinned by a whole lot of habitat mapping and I guess the best research that was available to try and capture those areas. Um, you know, and then there was a whole other political process that I guess, you know, at Parks Victoria we were all less involved in, which was about engaging with people and getting them on board to understand know why marine protected areas are important and what we're trying to achieve here um, and probably the biggest achievement that came from that is our, our network of marine national parks and marine sanctuaries have the highest level of protection that you can have so they're all no-take marine reserves so you can't fish you can't extract anything and since that time that's been shown to be um, easily the most effective way to protect biodiversity to have that high level of protection. Do we know what sort of difference they've made if we look back 20 years before there was this system implemented? Um, do we have a sense of how they've affected um, the future of, you know, uh, marine ecosystems and some of the species that live in them? Yeah, look, I think we're really starting to get a good picture of the benefits and some of the, the effects that they've had. So 
Um, and what we are finding is that our marine protected areas have been really beneficial for the protection of our marine biodiversity. And, and we know this because at Parks Victoria, we've been working with research partners for over 20 years to monitor and do research um, in our marine protected areas. Uh, and we've been able to kind of follow that long-term trajectory of since they they were created to where they're at now and how what species have improved and what have declined. And and so there's some really nice examples of the benefits that we're seeing from those parks. So a good example is if you look across our whole network of marine protected areas across the state, we tend to find that overall, um, you know, the richness of fish and mobile macroinvertebrates, so, you know, large animals without backbones, so things like abalone and sea slugs, marine snails, sea stars, crustaceans, those types of things, they're all generally much higher richness inside marine protected areas. Um, and then we've also been looking at kind of the key ecological species. And so if you look at some species like uh, some examples would be something like the southern rock lobster, which is really ecologically important species on our on our reefs. It's a keystone predator. It keeps grazing number down, numbers down like that. In a lot of our marine protected areas, we find much higher abundances of southern rock lobster inside the marine park. And outside, we're also finding that for other um, ecologically important species like abalone, really important grazers, and a lot of our fish species. Uh, another trend that we've seen with a lot of our fish is that, that since the parks were created, their numbers have just um, increased. So we see higher numbers inside marine protected areas, but also an overall increase in the numbers that are inside those protected areas. And, and that's really just a reflection um, and we attribute this to there being the no-take protected areas. So people can't extract them, can't, can't um, fish for them, and they effectively act as safe havens and refuges. And so there's a secondary benefit to that as well, which is that if you've got all of these abundant creatures in, in your marine protected area, the way marine animals reproduce, as probably lots of the listeners know, is uh, it's quite different from us. You know, they produce tiny little offspring that can disperse through the ocean for weeks to, to in the case of the southern rock lobster, two years. Um, and so when they do reproduce, their offspring go outside the marine park. And so we effectively have them acting as really nice kind of source populations that can replenish reefs across the whole state. Um, yeah, so I think that's one of the major benefits we're seeing. The, the other one, just on a different tangent that I'd like to add in, is that I think um, what, what um, the real benefit of marine protected areas is I think they've also really helped build that strong connection between people in Victoria and the marine environment. So if you look around the state, there are lots of community groups and and members of the community that are really passionate about their local protected area and they're really involved in um, you know keeping an eye on them and, and reporting illegal activities and things like that and and in some cases like in Port Phillip Bay and, and in East Gippsland direct management um, they partner with us to to help tackle issues so I think giving them that stat protection status and that high profile that this is a special area with special nature in there has really helped kind of build the profile and, and develop that strong connection between the community and, and um, Victoria's marine environment. Mm. So obviously these areas protect, you know, huge numbers of um, animals and plants and communities. Do you have any idea of how many different species live in Victoria's marine parks? No, we don't really. So there's a lot, there's, there's lots. So um, uh, I can give you some, some, we have a sense of, uh, where there are diversity hotspots and things like that. And for some groups, we have a good number. Um, you know, we know that, for example, most of the brown macroalgae um, in Victoria is, is about 60% of that's only found in Victoria, about 70% of the red algae, which has numerous species in there, and some of them are still being identified in science. Um, uh, uh, about 70% only found in Victoria. So there's hundreds of them, but there's still so much 
to explore. We're still learning so much about our diversity and, and um, you know, particularly a lot of our research is focused in shallow areas in, and in the bays and there's still lots of work to be done to kind of catalogue the species that are, you know, found in the deeper sections of our reef and things like that. So, yeah, we could give you some rules of, of some general indications of the numbers of species, but, you know, it's in the hundreds and, and thousands, but it obviously varies depending on whether you're talking about sea stars or fish or, you know, algae, things like that. Mm. What are some of the most um, threatened or endangered species that are protected in Victoria's marine reserves? Yeah, so that's a, that's a good question. So, um, yeah, look, our marine protected areas, they're sanctuaries for for a range of threatened communities and species. Uh, probably some good examples um, of threatened species. So down at Wilson's Promontory Marine National Park, which is, you know, our eastern Victoria off the prom there it's a really important refuge and nursery for great white sharks so they're considered vulnerable globally um, that's an area where they go to give birth to offspring so really important for the recovery of that species somewhere like Wilson's prom is really important for um, uh, like migratory whales and humpback whales so they're no longer necessarily considered threatened but they're obviously still recovering from those years of, of you know fishing impacts um, and so it's a really important stopover for them as they migrate along the coast. I think we had a really nice example, actually, in, in uh, we've just completed a monitoring program at Cape Howe Marine National Park. Um, one of the monitoring techniques we use there is called a baited remote underwater video or a BROV. So you drop a camera down, it has bait on it, and fish come and feed on it. You can count them and work out you know, what habitat preferences they have and what's inside outside of the park. That's how we're using them. But um, in, in doing this, we we're doing this in partnership with Deacon. We got this great footage of a grey nurse shark um, swimming up behind the camera and then doing a swim by right in front. And so that was quite exciting for us to see something like a grey nurse shark up there in Cape Howe in the Far East. So that's obviously highly endangered species, you know, most commonly associated with New South Wales and the East Coast. But, you know, we have some of them in our eastern parks. And then I think, you know, another threatened community that, that's a personal favourite of mine is probably the giant kelp communities so um you know really tall massive um plant that used to be abundant across the coast of victoria and anecdotally you know it was all through port phillip bay and along the west coast it's largely disappeared now but within our marine sanctuaries we've got some really important um stands there uh you know especially along the west coast so they act as really important source populations and it's an interesting one because we're starting to see a few individuals pop back up in, in parts of Port Phillip Heads Marine National Park, which is kind of exciting, but we don't know, you know, what, what that means, but a few little individuals there. So, um, yeah, so there's some nice examples. And I think, you know, in, in the marine world, what we call threatened species, um, there's lots of stuff that I guess isn't formally considered threatened, but for years it's, it's, uh, they've, they've, I guess, suffered the impacts of fishing and, and things like that. And so, our marine protected areas just in general are very important sanctuaries for you know things like the southern rock lobster blue groper stuff that's been i guess effectively hammered over the years um and so great place for them to recover and and we're starting to see you know increases in their populations mm. yeah so as you mentioned um marine parks and reserves and the oceans generally are facing a lot of changes um and even though these parks um are, are sanctuaries and there's no fishing allowed um, there are challenges like climate change. Um, what are some of the biggest threats that they're facing and will the conservation approach have to change um, in the future? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, so there's some of the threats I think that um, 
that uh, are always ongoing and where the approaches stay the same. So stuff like illegal fishing and, and poaching, um, you know, we know it goes on, but the approach there is just good compliance and enforcement. And we've done that and we'll continue to do that. Um, you know, similarly, I guess, for, for the, there's some threats from water quality in some areas and so challenging to manage, but the approach there is just to keep improving catchments. Um, I think the big threats for for marine protected areas um, and where changes in approach are needed are really in relation to, I guess, climate change. And then in, interlinked with that is the expansion of pest species. So what we've seen, for example, on the east coast of Victoria is the, uh, an example of this is the black spine urchin, which is marching west, um, usually found only on the east coast and not in Victoria. And it's been eating its way through our kelp forests on the east coast. And so, um, you know, up to 10, 15 years ago, it just wasn't there. And that's a result of climate change. It's, it's promoted by warmer sea surface temperatures. And so that's meant we've really had to drive some more active management in our marine protected areas, removing those urchins. And so that's been a more recent activity we've been involved in um, that, that will continue to need to be involved in. Um, and, you know, that pressure is just going to increase as climate change increases. And then Climate change is a good one that you raise because climate change is is happening, um, and what we need to decide is is how we tackle climate change. There's some things we can manage, like urchins, for example, and, and new invasive species, and example of things where we've got management levers in our parks. When you're talking about sea surface temperature rise on its own, um, which might say, for example, cause species to migrate away from habitat and things like kelp tend to prefer you know seaweeds prefer cold water they might not like it we have to work out well what's the stuff we can manage where we can make a difference and what's the stuff that we're just you know the change is inevitable it's coming um and so that that's look using science look at things like where are habitat refuges where are climate refuges and to make sure those are the areas we really prioritize protecting inside marine protected areas one of the biggest challenges for us in victoria is that uh people don't really um, I guess recognise just how spectacular and fantastic our marine biodiversity is. A lot of the association is it's somewhere up in Queensland. And so, you know, I think a really important conservation action um, that, you know, we're definitely um, putting a lot of effort into is just, I guess, getting the word out about how good our diversity is, the benefits and you know, shows like this are great for doing that as well to really demonstrate what people are, what, what, is in our backyard and, and the fantastic diversity that we have that a lot of people won't see unless they're divers or not getting under the water. That was Michael Sams from Parks Victoria. And you can hear more about the creatures that live in Victoria's marine parks in a webinar on September 14. Head to parks.vic.gov.au to find out more. After the break, we'll be hearing about a new plan to restore Australia's coasts. But before that, Here's Baker Boy and Bernard Fanning with Wishing You Well. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Disappointing the wishing well. And I just want to wish you well. Got a love you can never sell. Broken heart makes you feel like a jail cell. Everybody's going through, you can never tell. I wish there was a way that I could break the shell and set your body free like you're cool as hell.
side Don't stop if it makes you feel right Make room for the feelings you hide Got love for the whole world, peace sign High rise, low light Same blood as my brother on the flip side You can't win at this game, it's a deep fake Some things you just can't replicate Nah, y'all get in here, I'll leave No more bang, I'll come down I'll go, no sleep, that I can't for it all Do it again, I can't the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. That was Baker Boy and Bernard Bernard Fanning with Wishing You Well. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. The recent State of the Environment report showed that things are going to have to change to stop the decline of Australia's environment, including our coasts and oceans. More than 90% of some of our marine ecosystems like oyster reefs and kelp forests have disappeared. There are lots of people and communities working really hard to restore Australia's coasts and oceans, but what more are we going to need to do to look after them properly? The CSIRO has recently released the first roadmap for restoring Australia's coasts and marine environment. To find out more, I spoke to Megan Saunders from the CSIRO. So Megan, coastal restoration is already happening all around Australia's um, coasts and marine environments. Can you tell us what the need is for a roadmap like this? There's really great examples of coastal and marine restoration activity happening all over Australia. There's lots of groups working on this. Um, what What we're finding is that a lot of the activities tend to be fairly small scale, um, with exception, but um, moving forwards, in terms of scaling up restoration to larger scales. We want to do this to meet societal objectives around the environment and, and people. And to do this requires a roadmap and coordination across different levels uh, in order to move forward and overcome some of the barriers that currently exist. And does the roadmap, do you identify um, any particular ecosystems that are most in, uh, in need of focusing on in restoration efforts? Our research was fairly inclusive of all coastal marine ecosystems or things that you might think of as salty or habitat forming. So, for example, salt marsh, mangrove, um, seagrass, coral reefs, oysters, kelp, sand dunes. When I think about your question about prioritizing ecosystems, I think about actually let's identify the objectives that you want to achieve in that in that restoration. 
And so when we think about it that way, it actually changes the question a little bit to thinking about what you want to achieve. Is it uh, community engagement or is it water filtration or is it coastal protection? And the context, so which, which overall place is it? And once we think of it that way, we actually come up with a slightly different um, answer. So it may be that to achieve um, water quality objectives, you might want to rebuild an oyster reef. Or to meet um, fisheries objectives in the north, you might want to restore wetlands using tidal reintroduction in Queensland. Mm. In this report, you, um, you speak to a lot of different community organisations and some of the responses are really interesting and the things that they place value on. Can you give us a bit of a sense of what um, the people who are involved in coastal conservation are, are saying they need? Like there's so much interest and enthusiasm and action in the coastal restoration space right now in Australia and worldwide. It's, it's really exciting. We engaged with uh, over 150 stakeholders and users um, nationally in Australia, and this included governments, non-governmental organisations, um, Indigenous groups, um, communities, the private sector and researchers, and a pretty loud message came out was that many people experience barriers or challenges with respect to both funding so the timeline of funding proposals and the amount of funding that they feel is required for the scope of work uh, people also fairly unanimously said that the current permitting structures are a challenge for their activities and i, I think this really relates back to some historical reasons where we used to think of conservation and the coast really around more protecting intact habitats and stopping stressors from impacting them. So it might be around fencing from grazing or reducing sediments running off from the land. And those are so important activities that still need to happen. But the conversation has been reframed a little bit now, including these active interventions like transplanting or building new reefs uh, re allowing the tide to re-enter in places where it's been blocked off. And when we start thinking about those interventions, permitting structures are a real barrier right now. That's because the barrier, those activities trigger permitting processes such as development applications. So you might have to do the same permit um, to restore a mangrove forest as you would to build uh, an apartment building. Another example is with coral reef restoration where these activities trigger the Sea Dumping Act. And these are really useful policies and permitting processes designed to prevent damage to the environment. But what our end users are really asking out um, pretty vocally for is fit for purpose policies that are designed for restoration to mitigate um, harm that those activities might, um, might occur, but that are actually tailored towards the activity. So taking a step back, there's, we've recently had the State of the Environment report, which painted um, a pretty sombre picture of the state of Australia's environment. Um, in, your, in your report, you talk about the loss of some habitats like oyster reefs and kelp forests of over 90%. Can you give us a bit of an overview of how Australia's coastal ecosystems are actually doing? Look, Australia has some really beautiful and fairly well intact systems, especially compared to some other places in the world. But as you mentioned with the State of Environment Report, it's becoming really apparent that humanity, we're having very substantial impacts on these systems. 
as an example, uh, we've lost around 92% of oyster reefs nationally since Europeans arrived and started harvesting them and um, changing the environment in which they lived. Uh, in certain places like Tasmania, 95% of giant kelp forests have been lost due to warming temperatures and interactions with um, species that are migrating south, like sea urchins. And in some estuaries, you know, up to 80% of the salt marshes and other types of coastal wetlands have been impacted. On top of that, we're starting to see these real impacts of climate change. So um, about a decade ago, over a thousand kilometers squared seagrass were lost in Shark Bay and thousands, a couple of thousand kilometers of coastline were impacted in the Northern Territory um, and Queensland with loss of mangroves. So I guess just to recap, there's a real challenge here. Our systems are being impacted and we really do need a plan to be able to mitigate those impacts um, so that these ecosystems can keep delivering um, ecosystem services like shoreline protection, like nutrient filtration, like fisheries, etc. that we really actually depend on. Are there any really good examples of successes in coastal restoration that um, you looked at when you were doing this research? Like there's so many amazing examples of success in restoration. Just to caveat a little, I say that the word success can be a little bit nuanced. So it really depends on the outcomes of the project compared to what our objectives were. Um, some great examples, uh, the, as I mentioned, the Nature Conservancy is working to rebuild lost shellfish reefs around Australia. And they're having some really um, good outcomes in terms of building um, pretty large scale reefs. We're also hearing a lot about um, big advances in methods used to restore seagrasses using both seeds and these methods of Hessian mats. Um, and in South Australia, there's some really nice examples of that coming about. In Queensland and New South Wales, one of the big opportunities is the reintroduction of tidal flows into areas that have been previously blocked off um, from the ocean. So an example um, in Queensland, nearby to where I'm based, is the Blue Heart site, which is um, Unity Water has re-allowed tidal flow into some previously um, sort of ponded areas. So they were had been turned into fresh water, which are actually can be a big source of methane. And then when the salt water is allowed back into the area, it reverts to a seagrass, or sorry, a salt marsh and mangrove wetland, which is great at sequestering carbon dioxide. Um, so those types of activities can actually really help us mitigate and adapt to climate change. And there's this term that comes up um, throughout the report, which is nature-based solutions. Can you tell us a bit about what that means and what its potential is? Nature-based solutions is a really exciting concept. It basically um, uses nature to help achieve societal objectives. So ecological restoration, which is defined as trying to bring a degraded ecosystem back to either a historical baseline state or a reference state. So trying to get it to look the same as another place that you think looks pretty good ecologically. The term nature-based solutions is a little bit more pragmatic. And what it, what it alludes to is the fact that in some places you might not actually be able to get a system back to a historic state, um, but you can still use nature to achieve objectives. 
And so an objective might be to stop a shoreline from eroding. And so living shorelines are an example where um, organizations, they're, they're really popular in the United States, is you actually, instead of putting a seawall in, you um, plant, use a number of different techniques to plant a shoreline, maybe with marsh grasses, add some rocks, you know, different, maybe some oysters. And so that shoreline doesn't look the same as it did, say, historically, but it still uses nature to help achieve that objective of shoreline protection. We can think of nature-based solutions across lots of different dimensions um, as well. So, um, you know, nutrient filtration can be, installing a wetland can be a form of a nature-based solution. We think that nature-based solutions are just absolutely key moving forward and using them wherever possible. Because this is, instead of using concrete or other hardened infrastructure, which loses um, biodiversity values and services that that biodiversity might support, like nutrient filtration or carbon sequestration, you, know, you can use the nature-based solution and still get some of that um, benefit that you're looking for that have all these different co-benefits. So it's really exciting and nature-based solutions are being elevated to really high levels you know, in the international conversation. That was Megan Saunders from the CSIRO. And that's all we've got time for this week. To listen to this show again or any of our previous episodes, head to 3cr.org.au forward slash radio blue. We'll be with you again next week. And in the meantime, stay well.